Well, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Boy, if you came out for the first time, I know sometimes it's hard to go into a new place, so thank you for doing that. If you're joining us online, we're grateful also. If you've heard me speak before, you know we are a ministry team of seven people. Seven of us kind of run the day-to-day in the church. And there's upfront folks like me and there's Blake, you see us a lot, but there are behind-the-scenes people who are as as important doing stuff. And and one of those people is Mandy Mandichet. So she is our office manager. So if you come on first Sunday lunch, that's her. The uh, all-church retreat, she's doing that. If there's a light that needs to be fixed downstairs, that's Mandy. About three months ago, my desk went kaput. We ordered a new desk. You'd say, Andy, you've got an engineering degree. Surely you put that together. Not a chance. That was Mandy (laughs) with her son, Ty. So one day, I am back in my office, and I come out, and Mandy is just sobbing. And that gets my attention, because she's not a woman who's emotional. Not a lot of tears with Mandy. (laughs) So this gets my attention. It's kind of like, what's up? Well, this was last October, and she is trying to get tickets to go see Taylor Swift. You remember how that was, and people got shut out? I mean, she says, and there's two shows in Kansas City. She wants to go to them, and they can't do that, so Keith and I are going to fly around, and Man, I had worked with her four years, and I had no idea that she was listening to Taylor Swift. So it took her a couple weeks to get through it. And so finally I said, I didn't tell me about this. How did this start? Well, first, she feels a little sheepish because she's not really the demographic that likes Taylor Swift. So if you could encourage her that she's just young at heart, she'd appreciate that if you have a favorite Taylor Swift song or meme. But I said, where did you get started? And she told me, Andy, it was in 2014, the song Blank Space. Have you ever heard of it? Nope, I'd never heard of that. Oh, she said, you've got to listen to it. It's Taylor Swift pushing back against the intrusive press that was saying she knew her, and it was a satirical response. So she cranks that thing back there, and I listened to Blank Space for the first time. (laughs) And there was a line from Blank Space that stood out. Remember, this is a satire by Taylor Swift. She says, darling, I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. Now, I think that's an excellent thought about sin. It looks, it looks like a daydream. What is a daydream? It's, it's idyllic. It's serene. It's peaceful. But a nightmare is what? It's terrifying. It's frightening. It's ghastly. And I would suggest that sin is a nightmare dressed as a daydream. So I want us to think about pushing back on the allure of sin. So if you've got a Bible, if you open it to 2 Samuel, verses 18 and 19, I want to go through these, past, these couple uh, chapters with considering this question. Why should we reject the allure of sin? Why should we reject the allure of sin? Now, if you haven't been with us, Israel is moving from a loose federation of states to a monarchy. They are putting their trust in a king, and God says it's a bad idea, and They keep pushing, and so we give them their first king, Saul. Saul does a terrible job submitting to God, and so they move on to David. David becomes king, and Israel begins to flourish. But along the way, David is compromising at least one command of God, and that is not to be multiplying wives. But when you're the king, you can do that. That's my wife, that's my... And you just keep adding them and adding them, and way before Israel went to the promised land, Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said, don't, the king should not multiply wives. Well, David keeps doing it, keeps getting away with it. Until he's up on the roof... And he sees a lady named Bathsheba and thinks, man, she looks good. And he calls for her, hey, she's married, but that doesn't seem to stop David. He sleeps with her and he impregnates her. 
Now he's got a problem because her husband's away at battle. So how are you going to explain this? So he calls the husband back, tries to get him to go sleep with his wife. He won't do it because he said, you know, if my men are out in the field, I'm not. I, so he gets him drunk. He still won't do it. So he orders his murder. Uriah, the husband's murder, and he marries her, and he thinks he's gotten away with it until Nathan the prophet comes and said, God saw that. Um, you've been forgiven, but you will live the consequence of this sin. That baby you conceive will die. The sword will never depart from your house. In the last few weeks we've seen that within David's family, there's been rape between a half, of a half-sister by a half-brother. The real brother then takes umbrage of that. His name is Absalom, and David doesn't do anything about the rape, so he steps in and he murders the brother who raped his sister. He flees, eventually comes back, but David doesn't do anything to this son who committed murder. So he thinks he can take anything. So last week, we saw he staged a coup. And he's taken over as king in Jerusalem, and David's on the run. And that's where we are in 2 Samuel 18. We'll start there. First, verses 1 and 2, David's kind of getting his troops ready. He's getting them in three groups. We'll go out this way, and he says, I'm going with you. But in verse 3, they think, no, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. It says, but the people said, you should not go out, for if we indeed flee. They will not care about us, even if half of us die. They will not care about us. But you, David, you're worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, now it's better that you be ready to help us from the city. David, this is about you. Absalom and David are the father-son that are vying for the kingship of Israel. David, if you die, it's, it's over. So we can't have you in battle. You're worth 10,000, but that, David's worth so much more. He's the reason the war is going on. Verse 4, David said, okay, uh, I'll stay. Verse 5, they're ready to go out, and, and David gives them this one order as they go. He says this, the king charged Joab and Abishai Ittai, saying, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king charged all the commanders concerning Absalom. Now, why would you be dealing gently with Absalom? He's the one that staged the coup. Because Absalom's his son. David's caught. Now, there's no way this can end. Somebody's got to die. But David's in denial. That's my son. Those of us who have kids, we get that. We understand that. So verses 6 through 8 are a very compressed description of the battle because, again, this is about Absalom and David, but it tells us just a brief goings-on of the battle. Here's what we get, verse 6 through 8. Then the people went out into the field against Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. The people of Israel were defeated there before the servants of David, and the slaughter there that day was great, 20,000 men. For the battle there was spread over the whole countryside, and the forest devoured more people than the sword devoured. David's soldiers are experienced, so they make the forest work for them. That's what that's saying metaphorically. 20,000 soldiers from Israel are dead. And before we pass over that too quickly, that's 20,000 families at least that are grieving. I was in college right before the beginning of my junior year, a good friend died in an accident, and that, his family was like a second family to me. I can't explain that to you except that it wrecked, wrecked that family. This was playing out here. I don't know the age breakdown, but say 10,000 of those 20,000 that are dead are 18 to 22. That's 10,000 families. 
Maybe the other are a little bit older and, and they're married and they have kids. So there's another 10,000 that are widowed and orphaned without a dad. Why did this happen? Because of David's character issues. David's problem affected the nation of Israel. Let's remember the leader of a character will affect that which he's leading. If it's a nation, it's a president. If it's a governor, it's a state. If it's a state, it's a governor. If it's a school board, it's chairman of the board. If it's business, it's the CEO of the business. Character matters. And people are suffering in Israel because of David's character flaw. Verse 9. Focus is back on Absalom. So now Absalom happened to meet the servants of David, for Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head caught fast in the oak so that he was left hanging between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him kept going. So he's left there hanging. Verse 10, when a certain man saw it, he told Joab, remember Joab's the leader of the army, David's army, and said, behold, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. Joab is incredulous in verse 11. Joab said to the man who had told him that, now behold, you saw him. Why, did you, then, why then did you not strike him there to, to the ground? I would have given you 10 pieces of silver and a belt. Man, this, is, this was a high, when we went into Iraq, U.S., they had high-value targets. This was a high-value target. Absalom was the highest-value target. You had him hanging from a tree, and you left him there. What were you thinking? I would have made you wealthy. Here's what the guy was thinking. Verse 12 and 13, the man said to Joab, even if I should receive 1,000 pieces of silver in my hand, I would not put out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king charged you and Abishai and Ittai, saying, protect for me the young man Absalom. Otherwise, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you yourself would have stood aloof. Yeah, you say you would give me ten pieces of silver, but I'm, I'm guilty of treason. The king told me to protect his son. You would have backed off. I'm by my, no, no thanks, Job. I'm not, no. Joab's done with this conversation. He's on mission. Here's what he says in verses 14 and 15. Then Job said, I will not waste your time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand. I mean, he's, he's really getting after it. And thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. And the ten young men who carried Joab's armor gathered around and struck Absalom and killed him. Verse 16, then Absalom, or I'm sorry, then Joab blew the trumpet, and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab restrained the people. Hey, the leader of the coup is dead. This doesn't need to go on anymore. Let's call it off. What becomes of Absalom, verses 17 and 18? They took Absalom and cast him into a deep pit in the forest and etched over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, each to his tent. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself a pillar which is in the king's valley, for he said, I have no son to preserve my name. So he named the pillar after his own name, and it called it Absalom's Monument to this day. Then you get a burial in a family tomb. He's cast out. He's given an ignoble burial. So now, got to inform David what's gone on. Remember, David's back in the city. So verses 19 and 23, they decide they're going to send two runners to give David the information. This is before text. This is before email. Um, so I'll let you read that on your own. And we'll focus on David as he waits for these runners, starting in verse 24. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof of the gate by the wall and raised his eyes and looked, and behold, man, a man running by himself. The watchman called 
and told the king, and the king said, it is by himself, there is good news in his mouth. And he came nearer and nearer. So David said, oh, there's one runner. That, that must be good news. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, behold, another man running by himself. And the king said, this one also is bringing good news. The watchman said, I think the running of the first one is Ahimez, the son of Zadok. And the king said, this is good news. This is a good man and comes with good news. You know what? I think David's trying to talk himself into. There's good news. One runner, he must be coming. Two runners, there must be good news. Ahimez, he must, he's a good man. He's got but if you're a parent, you get that, don't you? You get that. You're, my kid's on life's on the line. Man, I'm praying. I've got to give me good news here. Let's see what happens. First runner comes to David. Verse 28. Ahimez called and said to the king, all is well. And he prostrated himself before the king with his face to the ground. He said, blessed is the king your God who has delivered up the men who lifted their hands against my lord the king. In other words, the coup has been put down. The king said, is it well with the young man Absalom? And Ahimez answered, when Joab sent the king's servant and your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was. Then the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. I don't think Ahimez had the guts to tell him. So I'll just pretend like I didn't know. Okay, step aside. I got another runner here. Verse 31. Behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said, let my lord the king receive good news, for the lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you, i.e., we put the rebellion down. But here's the question David's got, verse 32. Then the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. That's a euphemism for he's dead. The rebellion's put down. But your son, he's dead. Now, David, you knew it had to go this way. But what you know and what you feel, two different things. Verse 33, the king was deeply moved. You bet, deeply moved. And went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. I mean, he wept. And thus he said as he walked, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son, five times he cries out, my son. Why? Because like the majority of us, he loved his son. Yeah, he led a coup, but that didn't change. He loved his son. And now that son is dead. How did we get here? How did we get here? Let me tell you how we got here. David's sitting on a roof. And he sees a woman bathing. And, man, he's just been taking women like he wants for his wife. And, man, she looks good. So he calls her, and they, they're intimate. And, and I'll bet that experience was enjoyable. But if we're called to do a cost-benefit analysis here, a few minutes of fleeting pleasure versus rape, a murder, a rebellion, and now your son's, you tell me. Was it worth it? Sin and rebellion against God, doing our own thing, in the short term, it always or usually seems good. But it ain't worth the long-term consequence. Here's the question we were asking, why should we reject the alert of sin? Here's what I'd say. The short-term pleasure of sin 
is not worth the long-term pain. Sin in the short-term, pleasure, it's fun. It ain't worth, not even close, the long-term pain. Now, David's got a dead son, but he's still got to lead a country. And people have gone out to battle, and he's grieving. And that's where we are in chapter 19. It says, then it was told Joab, behold, the king is weeping and mourns for Absalom. The victory that day was turned to mourning for all the people, for the people heard it, said that day, the king is grieved for his son. So the people went by stealth into the city that day as people who are humiliated steal away when they flee in battle. The king covered his face and cried out with a loud voice, Oh, my son Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, you should have been trumpeting these troops who put on their lives for you, but look at it. You're grieved. Head of David's army is Joab. Joab, if nothing else, is, I mean, he's ruthless, he's violent, but he's politically expedient. David, if you don't do something now, you're going to lose these soldiers. That's where we are in verse 5 through 8. Then Joab came to the house to the king and said, Today you have covered your, with shame the faces of all your servants who today saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters, the lives of your wives and the lives of your concubines. Hey, David, if Absalom had won, you would have been dead. So would all your family. Anybody? Because that's what a new king does. He gets rid of the, the existing family. These people saved your life. Verse 6, by loving those who hate you and by hating those who love you. For you have shown today that princes and servants are nothing to you. For I know this day that if Absalom were alive, that all of us, and all of us who were dead today, then you would be pleased. Now therefore arise, go out and speak kindly to your servants. For I swear by the Lord, if you do not go out, surely not a man will pass the night with you. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come to you from your mouth, from your youth until now. David doesn't have the luxury of time. He's losing people who were loyal to him. So even as he's grieving, verse 8, so David arose and sat in the gate. When they told all the people, saying, Behold, the king is sitting in the gate, then all the people came before the king. What was that opening line? I'm a nightmare dressed like a daydream. What an apt description of sin. Daydream looks great, looks ideal, peaceful. It's ghastly, it's frightening, it's terrible. What drove this? Disobedience to God, particularly in the area of morality. God's the creator. He designed sex for a man and a woman in marriage. And people will push back and they'll say, Andy, it's old-fashioned, it's this, it's that. Okay, I mean, you can live your life as you want. But I know there's a creator who created this relationship. And when we're intimate with somebody, we bond with them. And if we connect, we pull away. And then we connect here and we pull away. We are scarring our soul and our heart. And you scar, you don't feel. And my observation is people who are promiscuous become very jaded and cynical in relationships. Animals mate instinctually. As people are promiscuous, they move closer and closer to it's an instinctual reaction rather than a deep bond. 
Well, people say, well, no, 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 Andy, you don't understand. We are dating, and we are going to get married, and so why not? Here would be my pushback. When I do counseling, marriage counseling, there are times I'll get the couple together and say, man, there are, like, there are huge value differences here. Did you guys talk about that when you were dating? Did you ever touch on that? Often the answer is no, because they were so caught up in the sexual experience. It, just, it was a powerful experience, and it, I thought we had a bond, but you find out that won't carry you past those value differences. Now you're five years in and two kids in, and you've got to figure out this chasm in your values. God is good, and God is loving, and he's designed this for a man and a woman in but, you know, this principle holds in other areas, like our speech. Why are we drawn to gossip? Well, I'm, I'm insecure. You know, I want to be popular, and you're popular, and I just, and, and, and so I, I'll say something about, did you hear about so-and-so? And, and it feels good in my mind to bring that person down, but, but then that short-term pleasure is offset by, I, I'm not trustworthy anymore. And Jesus said, Andy, I, I don't want you to, Worry about security out there. I'll be your security. You don't have to worry about those people. Or anger. You ever said something in anger? Why do we do that? Because, I, man, I want justice right now. And you did something. Man, it feels, say something that feels a bit like just to land a shot. But you know what that says? I don't trust God to, to make things right. I, he says he's going to make things right. He, I better be the meeting out of justice. And I don't know about you, but when I'm angry, I don't always see things clearly. And then when you say things, well, well that you, can, you can't take them back. The short-term pleasure, I, I, got that, I got that shot in. But long-term pain, I've dealt out hurt that I really didn't want to. God says, I want to meet that need. You trust me to be just. You wait on me. Say that in the area of eating. I um, would say this is a testimony to my... The impact of my um, wife's companionship in my life, I'm at least 25 pounds lighter than when we got married. Um, and I say that because we were about six months into marriage, and I found a receipt from a year earlier, and it said six times 50, 90 cents, and then tax and whatever it was. And she said, well, Andy, what was the six? Well, it was six chocolate chip cookies. Well, like, how long did those chocolate chip cookies last? Well, the night. Well, that's not nutritionally, that's not very good. Well, how often do you do that? Well, how often did you do that? Well, well actually quite a bit. Well, that, that would explain the, the weight gain. Well, why? Why did I partake in six chocolate chip cookies? Well, let me tell you, short term, they tasted good. They were good. Glass of milk, really good. And I was lonely. And the cookies, in the short term, help compensate for the loneliness. But God says, I want to meet that need. And I don't want you long-term jeopardizing your health by eating poorly. Sin, whatever it is, whether it's physical intimacy, whether it's our speech, whether it's our eating, whatever it is, there's always a short-term pleasure, but there's a long-term consequence. 
And Jesus says, I want to be the one that meets your need for intimacy. I want to be the one that meets your need for pleasure. I want to be the one that meets your need for significance. I want to meet one that meets your need for connection. You don't have to take these illegitimate ways. My hope is, as we embrace Jesus, we can step back from the short-term pressure, long-term pain cycle that we enter into. Heard me speak before, you know I'm a big fan of the University of Michigan football. And in this case, I'm listening to a podcast and a former player. And he talked about his career in the NFL. He was in Michigan in the early 90s in the heyday. Offensive lineman went to the NFL and he said, year three, I'm doing well. And, and then some guy lands on my knee and I'm hearing pop, pop, pop. And it just blows out my knee. So it's major reconstructive surgery. So I go that, you know, I don't play the rest of the year. In the spring, I'm back at Michigan. I'm working with the trainer. And we're getting me ready for the next year. And, he, and he's kind of working my knee. And he just says, it's kind of a throwaway comment. You know, for every year you play, your arthritis will come three years sooner. That's what he said, huh? He said, I called my wife that night and said, I'm, I'm done. What did he do? He looked at his short-term benefit. He loved football. And he got paid pretty well to play football. And he couldn't get it. If he leaves football, he couldn't get quite the same pay, not even close. He took the short-term benefit versus the long-term consequence. How long do I want to be living with arthritis in my knee? I think I'll call it good right now, and I'll find something else to do. Do you understand God in his word is playing the role of that trainer? You and I are tempted in the short-term by sinning, but he says, let me tell you, the short-term, it's going to be accompanied by long-term pain. We've got a good God that says, I want to be your Savior. I want to be the one you turn to. So you don't have to go the way of David. 